0: You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. The Gog-Magog War, Part 1, Intro and Timing Over the centuries, Christians, Jews, and Muslims have wondered about the meaning and timing of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which contain a prophecy about a future war, in which a multitude of nations march against Israel but are miraculously destroyed by God. There have been a multitude of interpretations of when this event will happen and which nations will be involved. Within Christianity alone, it seems that every generation of the church has applied this prophecy to their own time. For example, before the fall of the Roman Empire, church fathers like Eusebius wrote that it was a reference to the Romans. After the fall of Rome, other fathers like Ambrose wrote that it was referring to the invading Goths noting the, quote, similarity of the last syllable, that is, Magog and Goths. After the Goths, it was Attila and the Huns, then the Mongols, the Celts, the Khazars, European Jews, and the Ottoman Turks. During the Cold War, it was Russia, a view promoted by Hal Lindsey in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and after 9-11, it is often seen as a reference to Islamic countries. I believe that understanding the Gog-Magog war in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is important when trying to understand the end times in general, but I also believe that the Antichrist will exploit the often wrong views of Christians, Jews, and Muslims about the Gog-Magog war to great advantage during his rise to power, a view I will explain in a later chapter. In this chapter, I intend to show you that there isn't any reason for this issue to be so confusing to Christians, because the relevant texts give us all the information we need to determine, at the very least, the timing of the war, which I believe is the most important element. I will start out by discussing many of the modern views on Gog Magog with their strengths and weaknesses, and I will then lay out a case for my own view as well as anticipate criticisms of it. Different Views Though I will not list the strengths and weaknesses of the Jewish and Islamic views about the gog magog War, I will begin this section with a description of their views, in order that the reader can understand that these religions also have many of the same difficulties with its interpretation, and also that they might see that all three of the Abrahamic religions are anticipating the Gog-Megog War. The Jewish View Just like the Christians, over the years the Jews have interpreted this prophecy in light of their contemporary history. For example, the enemies in the Gog-Megog War were often seen by Jews to be referring to the Christians, Muslims, or both during times of Jewish persecution. Gog was seen as referring to Napoleon during the Napoleonic Wars, and during both World War I and World War II, each war was seen as the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Like Christians, they have also been quite divided on the timing of this war. For some, it is simply representative of past struggles. For others, the War of Gog occurs in the future, during the time of Messiah ben Joseph, the battle in which he is killed, but before the reign of Messiah ben David. Still others, including many of Judaism's most celebrated ancient writers, like Saida, Maimonides, and Naimonides, wrote that the gog Magog War would occur after Messiah ben David, the final Messiah, had been ruling over a restored Israel for some time, in what Christians would call the Millennium, the Islamic View. Gog and Magog are referred to in Arabic as Yahud and Mahud. The war they start is the fifth major sign in Islamic eschatology. Although they are sometimes individuals, sometimes peoples, and sometimes geographical regions, the references to them in the Quran and Hadiths clearly indicate that Gog and Magog are people that are numerous in number that will appear toward the end times. One Hadith says the following about the ethnicity and appearance of the people involved. Gog and Magog belong to the Turkic Mongol race, have small eyes, small flat noses, and wide faces. Their faces look like hammered-out shields. They believe that this war happens after the Mahdi and Isa have appeared and defeated the Dajjal, the Islamic Antichrist. They say that after Isa has killed or converted everyone to Islam, Allah will then let Gog and Magog out from behind the wall where they are held at bay. Gog and Magog will then kill almost everyone on earth, in fact, even Isa and his followers will need to flee to a stronghold in Sinai for safety. After some time, Isa prays to Allah, who sends a bird that drops a worm into the necks of these armies, which caused them all to die in one night. There is much less speculation in Islam regarding the timing of this event, probably because, in their view, the gog Magog War has to be preceded by the appearance of the Mahdi, Isa, and the destruction of the Djal, which are all events that would be quite obvious if they occurred. Christian views. I'm going to divide the Christian views about the timing of the Gog Magog war into four categories. Number 1, pre 70th week of Daniel, number 2, mid 70th week of Daniel, number 3, Armageddon, and 4, end of the millennium. Though there are subsets for most of these categories, for example, there are at least two views of the timing of the war that fall under the umbrella of pre 70th week of Daniel. I'm going to limit this discussion to these four broad categories, as the problems with the main category applies to all of its subsets as well. Pre-70th week of Daniel The problems with viewing the gog Magog war as occurring before the 70th week of Daniel begins are as follows. 1. In Ezekiel 39.7, it says that Yahweh's name is never to be profaned again after the end of the gog Magog war. It says, so I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. The 70th week of Daniel and the time of the Antichrist is characterized by blasphemy and rebellion against God, both on the part of the Antichrist, who is particularly blasphemous, and those that follow him. For example, it says that they will, quote, blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. Also see Revelation 17:3, Revelation 13:6, 6, Revelation 16:9 through 11. The people in Israel rejoice at the deaths of the two witnesses in Revelation 11:10, which doesn't sound like people done with rebellion against God to me. If the Gog Magog war occurs before the 70th week of Daniel, then one needs to explain how the blasphemy and rebellion by the Antichrist and the people of the earth in the end times does not constitute a defiling of God's name. This problem is insurmountable in my opinion. Number two. The nations recognize the sovereignty of God as a result of the Gog-Magog War. Ezekiel 38.16b says, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may acknowledge me when before their eyes I magnify myself. Ezekiel 38.23 says, I will exalt and magnify myself. I will reveal myself before many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 39.7b Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The nations are explicitly in rebellion against God all throughout the 70th week of Daniel. Revelation 11.2, Revelation 18.3, Revelation 16.14. In fact, it seems that the kings of the earth that are gathered to battle against Christ at Armageddon include all or most of the nations of the earth. So one would need to explain how this contradiction is reconciled. 3. Israel also recognizes the Lord's sovereignty in totality, northern and southern kingdoms, after Gog Magog. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Ezekiel 39.22 The salvation of Israel in mass cannot happen before the conclusion of the 70th week of Daniel. In fact, the whole point of the 70th week prophecy is that the entirety of the 70 weeks, including the last seven years, need to be completed before the salvation of Israel will occur. Daniel 9.24 says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. This also violates the purpose of the time of Jacob's trouble, which is a purifying event for the Jews during the last half of the final seven-year period, culminating in their repentance and recognition of God. They will not be completely saved until after this purification event is completed. Number four, phrases like dwelling securely, dwelling in a land that has undergone a restoration, quote, from the sword, a land of unwalled villages, peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, are all inconsistent with Israel's geopolitical situation currently or for the foreseeable future. Neither could anyone argue that this is some kind of false security brokered by the Antichrist, since that event isn't supposed to occur until the first day of the 70th week. Mid-70th week of Daniel Those that hold to the view that the Gog Magog War occurs sometime in the midst of the 70th week of Daniel usually see the abomination of desolation event which occurs at the midpoint as the time in which Israel comes to know God. They see references to the dwelling peacefully and without walls to be explained by the false peace of the Antichrist during the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. There are a number of different scenarios proposed that place the Gog Magog War within the 70th week all of which suffer from similar problems. Number 1. There is no indication that after the Gog-Magog war, Israel will once again be subjected to conquest, which would necessarily be the case if it occurred at the midpoint, since a great deal of destruction and conquest begins at that time, Matthew 24:15 15-21. Ezekiel says that there will be no one to, quote, make them afraid, and that God will leave, quote, none of them captive any longer after the war. This view essentially has Israel being miraculously delivered by God, only to be handed over to the Antichrist again for the final part of the 70th week. Zechariah 13.8-9 through nine says that two-thirds of Israel will be killed during this time, and Revelation 11.2 says that the Gentiles will trample Jerusalem for three and a half years after this point. This is hardly consistent with the language of a final victory and establishment of universal peace that seems to come after the Gog-Magog War. Number 2. Israel is said to bury bodies for seven months and use the weapons of the dead soldiers for fuel for seven years after the gog Magog War. This is inconceivable during the Great Tribulation, when the saints will be hunted and killed and the trumpet and bull judgments are taking place. Number three, related to the previous point, the burying of bodies is described in Ezekiel 39 as a triumphant event that cleanses the land. Ezekiel 39:12 through 13 says, For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them, in order to cleanse the land indeed all the peoples of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified says the lord god how can the land be considered cleansed or even beginning to be cleansed during a time before the final judgments found in revelation which for example turn the sea into blood and kills all the life in the sea A plain reading of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a picture of a final destruction which is followed by restoration, but this view anticipates that the Gog-Megog war is followed by the worst persecutions and devastations that the world has ever seen. Number four, this view presumes that phrases like dwelling securely or a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, is a reference to a false peace given to them by the Antichrist at the beginning of the seven-year period. This is a classic example of reading one's preconceived notions into the text. I don't think that anyone who holds to this view would disagree with me, that there is absolutely no suggestion in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that this is a false piece. The idea must be read back into the text. There is not one word in these chapters that would give the reader the notion that this piece is from anyone else but God, and that it will be anything but everlasting." Indeed, the destruction of Gog Magog seems to only prove that the original peace is in fact genuine, since the armies are destroyed by God before they even have a chance to attack. There has been a good deal of scholarly work showing that the specific phrases used by Ezekiel to describe the peace are phrases that are used elsewhere to describe the millennial peace. Ralph H. Alexander has said the following in his paper, a fresh look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. The expression, In the last days, Be a found in Ezekiel 38.16, places these events at the end time, for this phrase is most frequently employed to designate the time of Israel's final restoration to the land and the period of Messiah's rule, Isaiah 2.2, 2, Jeremiah 23.20, Jeremiah 30.24, Hosea 3.5, Micah 4.1, Daniel 10.14. Another significant factor in these chapters is the employment of the expression, living securely, a form of yasav, followed by labaf, and Ezekiel 38, 8, 11, 14, and Ezekiel 39, 26. This phrase is often employed in reference to millennial security, especially in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 23 6, Jeremiah 32:27, Ezekiel 28:26, and Zechariah 14:11. This expression is used previously by Ezekiel in the series of messages to describe a definitely millennial picture. Ezekiel 34, 25-28, and Micah 4:4. 4, 4. These chronological notices in Ezekiel 38 and 39, in conjunction with the temporal emphasis of the entire context of these six night messages, argue strongly that the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 transpire at the end time when Israel has already been restored to the land, the Messiah is present, and she has entered into the peace covenant with Yahweh her Lord. The mid-70th week view also suffers from the problems of the pre-70th week view, namely that Yahweh's name will be profaned again and the subjection of the nations and Israel cannot occur until the end of the 70th week. Armageddon The view that the gog Magog War is essentially the same war as the Battle of Armageddon has much more credibility than the ones we have looked at thus far, though it too has problems. This view does seem more consistent with Ezekiel 38 and 39, in that it too is a final battle, followed by peace and not continual war or persecution. The general scope of the event is more or less the same too, armies are gathered and then they are destroyed supernaturally leaving behind a multitude of dead bodies there is even a reference to the birds feasting on dead bodies in both passages there are much fewer problems with this view but the main problem it does have is devastating in my opinion the idea that israel would be dwelling securely in the way described by ezekiel just before the battle of armageddon is absurd as mentioned previously, if there was ever a time that Israel is not dwelling in peace, it would be the time just before Armageddon, when there is no more grass, clean water, or fish in the sea. This is a time when the Antichrist's persecution has been at its height, when all those who would not worship the beast are killed, and when Jerusalem has been trampled by the Gentiles for three and a half years. But because there is so much in common with Armageddon and Ezekiel 38 and 39, I am hesitant to do away with it altogether. And I think it's possible that it's to be seen as a near or type fulfillment of the Gog-Magog war, with the ultimate and most literal fulfillment being the next view we will cover. The end of the millennium. The view that the Gog-Magog war occurs after the end of the millennial reign, when Satan is led out to gather nations to battle Jerusalem, but is defeated by God, is the only view on the timing of this war that enjoys explicit biblical support. It is the only view that has no inherent contradictions, and make sense of the entire prophecy of Ezekiel, which begins in chapter 33 and continues through chapter 39. The arguments leveled against it are often superficial, and will be dealt with at length at the end of this chapter. Let me start out by explaining what I mean when I say that this view enjoys explicit biblical support in regards to the timing of the war. In Revelation 20, the Apostle John tells us when the battle of Gog and Magog will occur. Revelation 20, 7-10 says, Now when the thousand years have expired... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. He says this event will occur when the thousand years have expired. He tells us that it will occur after the millennium, after Jesus has been ruling on earth during an unprecedented time of peace. John uses the exact phrase, Gog and Magog, a phrase used only one other time, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and the details of the battle John describes is consistent with what was described by Ezekiel, even though it's obviously an abbreviated version. Ralph Alexander says of this reference to Gog Magog, quote, the strong basis for this position is the explicit reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation 28. Such an explicit reference cannot be dismissed lightly, as is often the case. The term employed in Revelation 20 verse 8 are the same as those in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Normal hermeneutics would require the identification of the two passages, since the terms Gog and Magog are used nowhere else in scriptures, unless strong reasons can be brought forth to deny such an equation. It's so frustrating to hear commentators and preachers speak about this passage in Revelation 20 and dismiss it with a wave of their hands, because the excuses they give for its dismissal are not at all convincing, and sometimes even misleading. For example, they will almost always say something similar to this, The armies in Ezekiel come from the north, but in Revelation 20 the armies come from the four corners of the earth. This objection is easily dealt with by noting that in Ezekiel 38, 5, 6, 13, and 39, 6, Nations from all the compass points are specifically mentioned, Persia from the east, Cush or Ethiopia from the south, Put or Libya and the people who dwell, quote, carelessly in the isles from the west, and Gomer and Tagarma from the north. Why they insist that the armies in Ezekiel only come from the north is beyond me. Some argue that the term four corners of the earth suggests a worldwide invasion, whereas Ezekiel is describing a coalition that is based primarily in the Middle East. This can be easily refuted by noting that the term four corners of the earth or four winds, which are often used interchangeably, are terms which often refer to the four compass points within a Middle Eastern context, Daniel 11:4, Jeremiah 49:36. Another reason they give for dismissing Revelation 20 is that in Ezekiel Gog is the main aggressor, who is a man, whereas in Revelation 20 they say that Satan is the aggressor. To this, I would say that there is no reason to expect that after the millennium, Satan will be incarnate and will physically lead these nations to battle. In fact, there is explicit evidence that he operates in the same way he always has after he is released, namely that he tempts these nations to go to war. Revelation 20, 7-8 says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. What could be clearer than that? Satan deceives Gog and Magog to go to battle. He is not leading these armies himself. Even the simplest reading of both Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation 27-9 will prove this argument impotent, as both passages clearly say that Gog is leading human armies in both cases. Another reason given for dismissing Revelation 27 through 9 is that they will say that in the passage in Ezekiel, bones are left to be buried, but in Revelation, the fire that God sends on the armies completely consumes them, bones and all. Like the others, this argument is reading way too much into the text. Let's take a look at what is said. Revelation 29 b says, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They say that the word translated devoured must mean the armies are completely consumed, bones and all. But I would suggest that there is far too little information given here to state dogmatically that the bones must be consumed as a part of this devouring. If you look at Zechariah 14.12, which some say is a picture of the destruction of Gog and his armies, you will see what looks like a fire that certainly could be described as devouring, but yet leaves the bones intact as it seems to only target their flesh. It says, quote, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. So it's just as likely that the word John used, which is translated as devouring, can refer to an event like we find in Zechariah 14, which is limited to devouring flesh. Charles Cooper, in his article, Ezekiel 38-39, and 39, makes a cogent point about the Greek word which is translated as devoured in Revelation 20, verse 9. Quote, since the verb literally means to eat up, but is used in a highly figurative sense with fire, the correct emphasis seems to be to utterly destroy. The extent of the destruction seems to be the life of the whole host, rather than the complete consumption of every inch of the bodies of the unbelieving host. I hope you will see that the reasons given for dismissing Revelation 20, 7-9 are easily dismissed themselves. The importance of this passage cannot be understated. It would mean that we, in fact, do have a clear biblical basis for saying that the Gog-Magog war occurs after the millennium when Satan is released. Despite the fact that John only spends a few verses to summarize Ezekiel's prophecy, the amount of similarities evident between the two passages are striking. Number 1. Both armies march against Israel. Number 2. Both armies are destroyed by God himself. Number three, both armies are defeated before they attack. Number four, both armies are destroyed by fire. Number five, both armies are coalitions of many countries. Number six, both armies are led by a guy named Gog. Number seven, the armies come upon people who have been living during an unprecedented time of peace. And number eight, the war will be followed by a true and everlasting knowledge of God. Problem solved. If the Gog-Magog war occurs at the end of the millennium, as Revelation 20 says, then the following problems that the other views have are solved. Number 1. Yahweh's name will never be defiled again after the war is over. Number 2. All the passages about dwelling securely can be seen in their normal context, as Israel would have been dwelling in peace for 1,000 years before this rebellion breaks out. Number 3. There is no need to divorce Ezekiel 38 and 39 from the previous chapter, chapter 37, which is part of the same prophecy and ends with a clear reference to the millennial kingdom where Jesus is ruling over a restored Israel. five: References to weapons made of wood and horses can be seen literally as opposed to allusions to high-tech missiles, as it can be reasonably assumed that during the millennium people will go back to a simpler way of life where horses and wooden weapons would be used, especially if there had been no need for weapons for a thousand years. six. The various promises of the final restoration after the war, such as the cleansing of the land, a true peace with no more threats of any kind, can be seen as totally true, since there will be no more wars or evil after Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Arguments against a post-millennial Gog-Magog war 1. Argument about the chronology of Ezekiel I honestly believe that the main reason people reject this notion is because chapters 38 and 39 in Ezekiel are followed by an obvious description of the millennium in Ezekiel 40-48. They assume that since Ezekiel 40-48 is talking about the millennium, that the gog Magog war, which is found in the two preceding chapters, must occur before the millennium. There are indeed many occasions in scripture where this kind of chronological connection would be valid, but as we will see, this is definitely not one of them. Ezekiel begins each prophecy with a description of the date when he received it. He does this 13 times throughout the book, the section that includes the prophecy against Gog begins in chapter 33, verse 21, which says, And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, 'The city has been captured. Everything that Ezekiel was given to write about Gog and Magog is included in this prophecy, which lasts for six chapters, and ends after the section about the Gog-Magog war in chapter 39. The nine chapters that follow this prophecy about the millennium are part of a completely different prophecy, which was given to Ezekiel 13 years later. Chapter 40 begins this way, In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. Dr. J. Paul Tanner says of this in his paper, Rethinking Ezekiel's Invasion by Gog, we need not expect chapters forty through forty eight to chronologically follow chapters thirty through thirty nine since these chapters are part of a separate vision. If you take the dates of Ezekiel's thirteen visions and put them in chronological order, it would look like this: ezekiel chapter one verse one ezekiel eight one ezekiel twenty one ezekiel twenty four one ezekiel twenty nine one ezekiel twenty six one ezekiel thirty verse twenty ezekiel thirty one verse one ezekiel thirty three verse twenty one ezekiel thirty two one and seventeen ezekiel forty one and ezekiel twenty nine seventeen You will notice that three of the visions are not in chronological order, and more importantly that ezekiel twenty nine seventeen which is about Egypt being conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, was written later than the prophecy of the millennium that begins in ezekiel forty A simple understanding of the nature of the book of Ezekiel would prevent anyone from building doctrine based on the order of the visions in Ezekiel. The ironic thing is that if you applied this idea correctly, and saw there being a chronological connection within a particular vision of Ezekiel, in this case the one that begins in chapter 33 and goes through chapter 39, you will come to the conclusion that the Gog-Megog war must come after the Messiah is ruling on earth, since chapter 37 is so clear that the millennium has begun, and the throne of David is occupied at that time. To say it another way, if you limited chronological connections to the same vision, then it is absolutely necessary to conclude that the Gog-Magog war comes after the millennium. Some people even suggest that the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel are part of a separate book altogether. Josephus tells us that Ezekiel, quote, left behind two books, Antiquities 10, 5, 1. And while we don't have enough information to say conclusively what Josephus meant, it would make sense if the last nine chapters of Ezekiel were distributed separately and it would mean that the book of Ezekiel originally ended with the Gog-Magog War, which would be fitting since the book of Revelation essentially ends with the Gog-Magog War also. Admittedly, this point is too speculative to be dogmatic about. Number 2. Israel would have no reason to burn the invaders' weapons or bury bodies in the Eternal Kingdom. There are many variations of this argument, but the main idea is based on an assumption that in the Eternal State that follows the Millennium, there is no reason to bury bodies or burn weapons for fuel. The people who are making this argument are assuming a great deal about life after the millennium. But the fact is, we have very little information about what life will be like in the eternal kingdom. However, the information we do have in Revelation 21-22 through 22 seems to suggest that there will indeed be life on earth, much like there was during the millennium, and therefore a reason to bury bodies and make fires. Revelation 21-2-3 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God. The New Jerusalem is a massive structure, fourteen hundred miles in length, width, and height. The notable point here is that the city comes from heaven to earth, and the point is made that the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. God is going to dwell on earth in the eternal kingdom. Therefore, we would expect that there will be some semblance of the laws of nature that govern earth to be in effect during this time, even if it's radically modified. It should also be noted that it's prohibited for anyone to enter the New Jerusalem that might defile it. Revelation 21:26 26-27 says, And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. My point here is only to suggest that the little information that we do have about the eternal state seems to suggest that there will be life on earth outside the new Jerusalem as well. It may be that only those who are dead in Christ dwell in this 1400 mile square city, but the existence of earthly life outside the city seems to be certain, and one would assume that there would be need for them to cook food with fires, etc., The argument that there would be no need for people to bury bodies or burn weapons in the eternal state could be a moot point anyway. After all, we're not told exactly how much time elapses from the gog Magog War until the eternal state begins. Dr. Tanner makes the following points regarding this. A closer look at Revelation 20 reveals that there are a thousand years from the beginning of Christ's millennial rule until the release of Satan. It does not tell us how much time transpires between Satan's release and the eternal state. Following the thousand years, several things must take place before the eternal state. Number one, Satan will be released for a, quote, short time. Revelation 23. Two, Satan will have time to deceive the nations and move them to attack Israel. Number three, Satan and the beast and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire. And four, all the unrighteous dead will be brought before the great white throne, judged by God and thrown into the lake of fire. Dr. Tanner continues, In all honesty, we don't know how much time there will be. But there is nothing in the text that would preclude a period of seven years in which the weapons of war could be burned. Another question then would be, why should effort be made to burn the weapons if the eternal state follows shortly afterward? Perhaps, since this is the last act of war before the new creation, this is done in celebration that Satan, the perpetrator of all the wars, is forever removed and war will never again plague humanity. So, the argument concerning the burning of weapons and burying the bodies is based on various speculations and presuppositions about things we are not privy to know completely, such as the timing between the thousand years and the eternal state, and the exact nature of life on earth in the eternal state. But I would suggest that the information we do know about the eternal state certainly allows for a post-millennial Gog-Magog war. Number three, Ezekiel 38 and 39 says that after the war, the nation shall know that I am the Lord... And that he will quote make his name known in the midst of Israel. But this would have already occurred during the millennium, they would say. It is true that the nations and Israel will be subservient to Christ in the millennium, but several passages in Scripture make it known that it is far from a sin free state Isaiah sixty five twenty, Isaiah eleven, three through five, Zechariah fourteen, sixteen through twenty one. In those passages it says that quote wicked people and quote sinners are still there. In fact, this is probably the reason that Jesus rules during this era with a, quote, rod of iron, that is, to quickly and decisively give out judgment to those who are sinning. It is generally accepted that during the millennium, people will still need to accept Christ as their Savior, in addition to their King, and that not everyone on earth is automatically saved in the millennium. In fact, there even appears to be people in the millennium who have never heard the gospel, Isaiah 66:19, Zechariah 8:23. Arthur Pink said this of the millennial reign, In spite of the fact that Satan will have been removed from the earth, and Christ reigns in person over it, yet conditions here will not be perfect even in the millennium. Unregenerate human nature will remain unchanged. Sin will still be present, though much of its outward manifestation will be restrained. Discontent and wickedness will not be eradicated from the hearts of men, but will be kept beneath the surface by means of the iron rod. Multitudes will yield to Christ nothing but, quote, feigned obedience, Psalm 1844 margin. This feigned obedience will be the product of power, not grace. It will be the fruit of fear and not love. The fact that not everyone is saved is quite obvious when you consider that when Satan is released at the end of this thousand years, he is able to tempt so many people to go to war against Jesus that their numbers are referred to as being like the sands of the sea. The point I'm trying to make here is that the millennium is obviously a blessed time, but it's not perfect, and it is not doctrinally correct to say that every person on earth is saved or, quote, knows God in the salvific sense at this time. While I agree that when the 70th week ends, Israel will be saved and the nations will be made subservient to God, there should be a distinction between that event, which begins at the millennium, and the universal love and knowledge of God that Ezekiel describes, which apparently won't occur until after the end of the millennium in the eternal kingdom. In conclusion, I think that placing the Gog-Magog event at the end of the millennium is the only option that has explicit biblical support, which eliminates all contradictions and has no insurmountable criticisms. I believe that the Battle of Armageddon event in Revelation 16 and 19 is the second best option. But because of the problems associated with people dwelling securely just before Armageddon, and in light of clear references to the timing in Revelation 27, which places the Gog-Magog war after the millennium, the Armageddon event should be seen as only a prefiguration or type fulfillment of the Gog-Magog war. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.